Well, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews 7. And the fellows have Bibles for you to follow along. If you don't have one with you, just to get their attention, and they'll get you a copy of the Scriptures. It's our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of the Bible because it is in it that God speaks to us. And it is why it is the most lengthy segment of our time together, because it is our God speaking to us and informing the other components of our worship, our prayer, our giving, and our songs as well. Those Bibles should be marked at Hebrews chapter 7 for you. When folks are in love, they'll say things that are not technically true, but they sound good at the time. They make promises and they make commitments in more soaring kinds of language than they normally use. My dad was a preacher and he used to use an illustration of a guy on the phone with his girlfriend and the guy's waxing romantic about his deep devotion to her and he says, Honey, I'd cross any river for you. I'd climb any mountain for you. There is absolutely nothing that I wouldn't do for you. And she says, Well, can you come over? And he says, well, I can. It's raining. Author Rusty Wright tells a story of romantic hyperbole that he engaged with with his uh, wife. He says this, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It would be a great way to express my enduring affection for my wife. I would find seven romantic birthday cards and give one to Meg each day for a week starting on her birthday. It would continue a sweet tradition that was begun before we married. Each card would have a simple picture that would tenderly convey our feelings for one another. Inside would be an endearing slogan or affirmation to which I would add a personal expression of my love for her. I didn't foresee that day three would bring an ethical dilemma. I carefully selected the cards and I arranged them in appropriate sequence. Day one showed a cute puppy with a pink rose. Inside it said, you're the one I love. Day two featured a picture of a little boy and a girl in a meadow with their arms over each other's shoulders, and the slogan was, Happy Birthday to My Favorite Playmate. Day three depicted a beautiful tropical sunset, bluish-pink sky, vast ocean, silhouetted palm trees. You could almost feel the balmy breeze. And inside it said, Paradise is anywhere with you. To which I added personal mention of places holding special memories For us, an island vacation spot, North Carolina hotel, our home. And I completed the remaining cards, I dated the envelopes, and I planned to bestow one card each morning for her birth week, and then reality happened. You see, I'd agreed to go camping with her for days one and two. Camping is something Meg thrives on. Outdoor living, clean air, hiking, campfires, it's in her blood. Camping's something I did in Boy Scouts. Dust, mosquitoes, noisy campers, smelly latrines. It ranks just below root canals on my list of favorites. We camped at a state park that was only 15 minutes from our home. On her birthday morning, she liked the fluffy puppy. Day two, the cute kids made her smile. So far, so good. Meanwhile, I'm tolerating camping, doing my best to keep my attitude positive. The food was okay. The bugs were scarce. After two days, though, I was ready to go home as planned. Meg wanted to stay an extra day. We both got our wish. Once home and alone, I pulled out Meg's card for day three, the one with the tropical sunset and the paradise is anywhere with you. Should I give her the card? I had chosen to leave the campground, but I reasoned with myself the slogan was true at least lots of the time. 
And so I settled on a compromise. I put a post-it note on the envelope explaining, you may find that this card contains just a bit of romantic hyperbole. She got a kick out of it, and they laugh about it now, years later. As I was considering this, I thought of how many songs in our culture make the promise, I'll be there. You know, there have been numerous songs by that title, various versions on that theme, remakes by different artists. So stay with me as I recount some of them. 1970, the Jackson 5 made that promise in a song with a number one hit. And the same song was number one in 1992 in a remake by Mariah Carey. Going back a ways, Bobby Darin and Elvis Presley had an I'll Be There song. There are many other versions, as I researched this, some by people I don't know. Emma Bunton, a group called Hardline, Megadeth promises I'll be there. Can't believe I missed that one. Sarah Geronimo, stunt Gloria Gaynor will be there. You can count on Jerry and the Pacemakers to be there too. There's been a film and a novel by that title. The same theme is in songs with other titles, like The Four Tops, Reach Out, I'll Be There. Some of the lyrics go like this. Now, if you feel you can't go on because all your hope is gone and your life is filled with much confusion until happiness is just an illusion and your world around is crumbling down, darling, reach out. Come on, girl, reach out for me. Reach out. I'll be there with a love that will shelter you. I'll be there with a love to see you through. goes on. When you feel lost and about to give up because your life just ain't good enough, And you feel the world has grown cold and you're drifting out all on your own and you need a hand to hold, reach out. I'll be there to love and comfort you. I'll be there to cherish and care for you. Just a couple more. James Taylor, number one, 1972. You've got a friend. Remake of a song written by Carole King. I feel like Casey Kasem. And this one goes out to the congregation at Community Baptist Church. (laughs) But that song says, When you're down and troubled and you need a helping hand and nothing, woe nothing, is going right. Close your eyes and think of me and soon I will be there to brighten up even your darkest nights. You just call out my name. You know wherever I am. I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call, and I'll be there. You've got a friend. Now, all of these people who have promised to be there, out of all of them, I know something about half or so of them. And of all of those I know something about, they have all been divorced. Many of them multiple times. Some of them are dead. All of them will be eventually. And I'm sure that all these folks mean well when they commit and they promise. But they clearly have limitations that impact their ability and their willingness to fulfill the theme. Their ability can be impacted by space. The truth is, I may not be there, and the reason I'm not there is because I can't be. I may want to be, 
And the time you need me most, I may be out of town or in the hospital or at work. The truth is, I can only be at one place at one time. And despite the song saying, just call out my name, it doesn't get me there. Skype notwithstanding. Skype helps, but it's not me being there. I'm limited in my ability to help because of space. I'm limited in my ability to help, to be there because of my nature. Because I have limitations. I'm limited in my knowledge, in my wisdom. And I can't give you what I don't have, and I may not have what you need. I'm limited in my ability to be there and help because of space and because of my nature and also because of time. I may not really be there because literally I may not be here. You may outlive me. And my promise to be there forever is shown to be, at that point, the romantic hyperbole that it really is. I've talked to widows, and I've talked to widowers, who are angry at their spouse for preceding them in death. I've heard phrases like this. Maybe you've heard them or perhaps said them. How could you leave me? I thought we had a deal. And in that relationship, it's never really sunk in that there's an inability to go on in time, to transcend the limits of space and our own abilities. I'm limited by space and by my nature as a human being, and my temporary existence here limits me. And I'm limited by one other factor as well. I'm limited in my character. My character influences my ability to keep my promises, despite all my good intentions. Despite all those good intentions, it is just possible that I could just lie about it. My character is such that I'm capable of making a promise, being alive and around and therefore able to be here for you, but just coming to a point that I refuse to follow through. I refuse to do so. Now, to be sure, I concoct good reasons, actually rationalizations, for why I'm lying and breaking my vow before God. But the point is, friends, I'm capable of that. My character is such that I can renege on the vow that I made even when I have the ability to fulfill it. And you have that limitation as well. Friends, how we desperately need someone who is not limited by any of those factors, who is not limited by space or nature or time or character, one who can and will. He has the ability and the willingness to fulfill what he has vowed. We desperately need someone like that. In verse 26 of Hebrews 7, I'd like to show you someone who, according to that verse, meets our need. One who is holy and blameless and pure 
and set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Every person here needs that person. And I want to show you what the Bible says about this one. Not limited by the things that limit us in our passage this morning. Let's devote this time to God. Let's bow for a moment. Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity to gather as your people. Lord, to praise you and to give back to you and to learn of you in your word. And Lord, we ask you to help us, be our helper in this moment, in this sacred moment. Help us, Lord, to understand, to be desirous to obey what you tell us in your word. O Holy Spirit, move upon the hearts of your people. We ask you to move upon the hearts of any who are here, but not yet your people. Draw them to yourself. Draw your people near to you through the truth of your word to your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So friends, Jesus Christ is unlike any merely human helper. Priests were appointed by God in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. And they were appointed to be a sort of representative of the people before God. He would go to God on their behalf. But he had the same limitations that they had. But Jesus has no such limitations. And so he is able and willing to meet our needs and to meet our deepest and truest needs. And I have for you three reasons that Jesus is able to do that in the outline inserted in your program. He meets our needs, our true needs, because of how Jesus was appointed. Notice verse 20. Others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. In the first part of your Bible that we call the, the Old Testament, God chose a line of people through whom the priests would come. One of the most famous was Aaron. And Aaron was the high priest, but he and his successors were not appointed on the basis of an oath as Jesus was. They were simply appointed on the basis of God's instruction. And so God simply told them, this is what I want you to do. And so we have recorded in your Old Testament. God says, have Aaron, your brother, he's talking to Moses, have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, so that they may serve me as priests. And then if you were to follow along, that's the first verse of Exodus 28. If you read chapters 28 and 29 of Exodus, you would find that an extended ceremony followed this instruction by God. But there was no oath from God. And God certainly did not say to Aaron or any priest that his priesthood would last forever. But he did that to God the Son. In Psalm 110 and verse 4, 
which is what is quoted now in Hebrews chapter 7. Psalm 110 and verse 4, God says, and now recounts in verse 21, you will be a priest forever. And so on an oath, God pronounces, this is what's going to happen with you. The only other time in Scripture where God swore an oath was in confirming His promise to Abraham that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed and I would give you a seed that will be as numerous as the stars. We saw last week that God swore that on an oath, confirming His promise to Abraham. Do you all remember from last week why God did that? On the one hand, He made His promise, but then He secondly confirmed it with an oath. Why would God do that when in fact His promise is enough? Just turn back to chapter 6 for a moment. Chapter 6 and verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. We saw last week that God's Word, His promise is sufficient. It's enough. But on these two instances... One with Abraham and his promise to Abraham, and now with Jesus and Jesus' ministry, God took the second step of a sacred vow of what he had already promised. And he did it for the reasons chapter 6 and verse 17 give us. One commentator says it this way. It was for this reason, because humanity is a race of liars. And so God accommodated Himself within the sphere of human undependability. His oath is a double assurance to fallen, duplicitous humanity of the eternality of Jesus' priesthood. Whatever God confirms by an oath becomes something so utterly unchangeable that it's woven into the very fiber of the universe and must remain forever. What God has promised here and confirmed with an oath absolutely is as sure as any law of the universe being given by this God who gave the laws of the universe. And the result of God's self-imposed, eternally binding oath is what we see at the end of verse 22. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And we need to see here, friends, that the emphasis is purposely focused on the name Jesus in this passage. If you were reading this in Greek, the language that your New Testament was originally penned in, Jesus, the name Jesus, is the last word in the sentence. (coughs) And the idea there is, in placing it in the last word, as the last word of the sentence, all of the weight of all that verses 20 through 22 say, is focused on Jesus as the guarantee. And he's referred to in this passage by the name that was given to him at birth, Jesus. Because it tells us why he came to earth and what he accomplished while physically here. Do you remember what Jesus means? The name Jesus means Yahweh, Jehovah, God saves. And in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 21, we have the angel speaking to Joseph, and he tells Joseph, you are to call his name Jesus. Here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. His name, Jesus, means he will save. This is what he has 
come to do. And so now, using his name rather than his title, Son of God or Christ, it's designed to remind us that God came to earth as man and he was fully human. And he took on a body. And in that instrument, his body, he felt the weight of temptation and testing and suffering so that, as we saw when we looked back at chapter 4, In verse 15, he is one who is tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. And he is able to, the writer says there, sympathize with our infirmities, with our weaknesses. This instrument, his body suffered. So that when we suffer, his body undergoes something that musicians call, I told you at that time, sympathetic resonance. When a note of suffering is struck in our lives, he feels the pain. The pain that plays in our hearts plays in his, says one writer. And so Jesus has perfect understanding and sympathy. Now friend, if you have said this week, or this month, or at any time, I feel like no one understands me. No one knows what I'm going through. The people that I used to be able to talk to are now gone. They've left in one form or another. They're not available to me. No one understands me. Hear this. That may be true of mere mortals. But it is not true of the one who is God and man and who suffered all things for our sakes. And of course this one came to save his people from their sins. How did he do that? He did it by taking the anger of God that was directed at our sin and he took it upon himself. He absorbed the punishment that I deserve and that you deserve on the cross. Just hold your finger in chapter 7 and will you turn back to chapter 2 for just a moment. Chapter 2 and verse 17. Chapter 2 and verse 17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every way. Here's why. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make, and here's the word, atonement for the sins of the people. The word atonement is a word we don't use very often, but an important word in Christian doctrine. It's propitiation. He became... He was able to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And here's what that word means. It means to satisfy wrath or anger. God the Father's holy anger is excited against our sin. And it abides on every one of us and must be removed in one way or another. And there are but two ways. You will suffer the punishment with the anger of God directed at you personally for your sin against Him. Or you will receive the gift that Jesus offers. Having absorbed the punishment, the wrath, the anger of God on Himself on our behalf. And Jesus has fully absorbed that wrath and He's taken it away. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, He's the one we can go to, and He's the one we can go to because He is Jesus, the one who will save you from your sins. 
And that involved his coming as man and experiencing all the suffering and difficulty of man. It meant dying on the cross to be a propitiation for our sins. And you all know that it also meant that he rose from the grave and he ascended back to the Father. After Jesus accomplished all of these things on earth, he ascended back to heaven and is now, the Bible says, interceding for us. Going to the Father on our behalf. Because of this, the end of verse 22, Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Whatever we need for our heart's health, Jesus, our superior priest, will do everything and anything consistent with his nature to meet our needs. Jesus is able to meet our needs because of how he was appointed. But secondly, I have in your outline, he's able to meet our needs because of how long he was appointed. Notice verse 23. Now there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I'll be there. Somebody says that in the song, or somebody says that to you in relationship on the human horizontal level now, I'll be there. Really? You'll really be there? For how long? Well, the best you can do is for as long as I can. Because as long as you can is limited, right? I'll be there, really? The priests didn't stick around. They couldn't be there. They were limited by time. And so the Bible tells us that they had successors, one after another. Numbers chapter 20. Moses removed Aaron's priestly garments and put them on his son Eleazar. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. And then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And then the Bible tells us that when Eleazar died, his son Phinehas succeeded him. And so you have Aaron and you have Eleazar and you have Phinehas. And the priestly succession continued on. The truth is the concluding comment for every priest was this, and he died. The Jewish Talmud tells us that there were over 300 priests that served all totaled in the first and the second temples. And in contrast to that, you have verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 7. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Now this word that's translated permanent, it does indeed mean, as you see it there, unchangeable or permanent, but it can also mean non-transferable. It's permanent and it also cannot be transferred. And I believe here there's purposeful ambiguity that it actually applies to both. It does not pass 
from one to another because it is permanent, because it is perpetual. Now, why does that matter to you and me? That we have this one who is a permanent priest with no successor who will come after him. Why does that matter to us? You see, friends, there is an absolute constancy, a faithfulness, a continuation, no unevenness in how Jesus treats those who come to him. Absolutely the same. Later, the writer of Hebrews is going to say this in chapter 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday and today and forever. Just think about when you experience a leadership change in any organization. It's very unsettling, isn't it? I've seen churches who have undergone leadership changes, pastors, for whatever reason, have left or passed away. And now there's a leadership change. Now let me just say, as I give this illustration, pastors are not priests. And the only priest you need, thanks be to God, is Jesus Christ. But when there's a change in leadership, then there's the question of, well, what's the next guy going to be like? And with Jesus, there will be no other priest. There will be no young, inexperienced, out-of-seminary pastor or priest who's not going to be the guy you go to. Always constant, no unevenness, because his position and his character do not change. Think of all the prayers that our high priest then has heard and has answered, and he remembers every last one of them. And so Jesus is able to meet our needs because of how he was appointed and because of how long he is appointed. This benefits us then with the priority benefit that's given in verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He is able to save completely, the passage tells us. One commentator said that he was called by a television station at one time and he was asked about Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you all know that Jeffrey Dahmer has made a profession of, of faith? And like many who are you know, sentenced to life or sentenced to death, that often happens and it's hard to know if it's genuine. And this, this pastor was called and asked, what do you think about that at the time that it happened? And he answered and he said it could be that he's simply mouthing the words to gain sympathy. It's certainly possible. He said, but if he has truly placed his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then all of his sins are removed, past and present and future, because Jesus is able to save completely all who come to him. Now, as I say that, I'm going to move on. But my guess is, as I say that, it's a shock to the system of some of us. Friends, we so need to lose the self-righteousness that so many of us still have. That says somehow that I was saveable, but not him or her. 
that somehow my sin is not as big or as great as his or hers. And many of us still harbor that. I know that because I do. I know that because I hear it from time to time. And I'm going to be taking a break from our series in the book of Hebrews in just a few weeks. Because we have Christmas coming up, we have a missionary visiting us on December 13th. I'm going to take a few weeks before I leave for India. I want to look at two passages of Scripture that really convict me, and I trust will convict you, about our self-righteousness. We're going to look briefly at the story of Jonah and his self-righteousness. We're going to look at the story of the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told. A very convicting story about those of us who would be self-righteous as God shows mercy to those we deem unworthy. God has shown mercy to you. He's shown mercy to me. He is able to save completely those who come to Jesus. And so let me just, friends... Delight your heart with the Word of God, with a reminder of what Jesus has done to save completely those who come to Him. Remember, God's Word says that God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And how did He do that? He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And who are those people that he did this with? Paul gives a smattering of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He gives a whole list of sins. He says the sexually immoral and idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slandered, swindlers. Can those people be saved? And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is complete salvation, and it's for all time eternal salvation. And that is why, friends, we should not be ashamed of the gospel, as Paul said, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And this salvation is not simply something that you received in the past and now are done with. Do you all hear that? That's what we think so often. Why are you talking about salvation? I'm saved. I came to Jesus when I was six. I remember toddling down the aisle when I was four in all of my wanton sin at the Awana rally. And I trusted Jesus. And so that's been taken care of. I'm saved. Did you know that the Bible teaches that you are saved but you are being saved as well. And you will be saved, ultimately rescued in the future. I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are doing what? They're perishing. But to those who are being saved, what Jesus began is not complete in you. He has begun a good work in you. And He is saving you from your sin, from your habits, from yourself, from your selfishness. He is setting you apart, sanctifying you. That's part of our salvation. And if all we rely on is what happened in the past, 
then friends, it calls into great question whether or not we possess Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers in the present. Because Jesus lives forever, he's able to make intercession for us. And so Paul asks in Romans 8, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Jesus meets our needs. Our true needs. Because of how he was appointed and how long he was appointed. And then last, and fairly quickly, because of how he fulfills his appointment. Notice verses 26 and 27. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy and blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus, then, is not limited by space is not limited by human nature, is not limited by time, is not limited by sin nature, by His character. So when we say, friends, that Jesus is our help, it is no hyperbole. He is our help. Now as I conclude, I trust that many of you, I I would hope that all of you, Believe every word that has been spoken in this message. And if you've come not believing, I trust you will leave having believed in Jesus. But I trust you believe that, but sometimes we would admit that it doesn't seem like Jesus helps. I call to him in the time of need, and it doesn't seem like he fixes it. I just want to deal with that for a bit, okay? And then challenge you with a few things and we'll be done. Jesus helps like no one else could. He's not limited. He is able. He is willing. But hear this. Jesus uses means to provide his help. And if we fail to avail ourselves of the means of grace that Jesus provides, then we should not be surprised when we get ourselves into a royal mess having disregarded all that Jesus promises and instructs and provides, but then we come to a time of need. We've messed everything up and we say, Jesus, fix it. And He doesn't fix it right away. And you know one of the reasons He doesn't fix it right away? He does not want you to ever, ever, ever disregard and drift away from Him again. He wants you to feel the weight and the pain of what it means to disregard His instructions and His commands. And oh, how many times have we done that? You would think we would learn. But Jesus provides means of grace. Those means of grace are His church. Those means of grace are His Word. Those means of grace are what we call the disciplines of the Christian life. Meditating upon His Word, praying, communing with Him regularly. 
If we blow through those things and we say, I'm going to go my own route. I can handle it. I can do it myself. Friend, you are going to hit a wall and you will not know what hit you. And you may remain in that difficult position for a fairly long period of time. Not because Jesus can't help. Not because Jesus doesn't want to help. But because Jesus wants you to learn. This is what happens when you leave the one and the only one who can be your help. Learn the lesson. Learn the lesson now. You say, okay, I'm convinced. I need to avail myself of the means of grace. How do I do do that? Let me recommend a few resources for you and we'll be finished. One of the reasons that we offer a program at our church called Growth Partners is so that you can have a regular time with another brother or sister, man to a man, woman to a woman, regular one-on-one time with them to read the Word of God together, to grow together, to talk together about your struggles. This is one of the means of grace that Jesus provides to be our help. And if you say, I don't need that, then at the time you've messed it up, friend, you'll understand why. It's not because Jesus didn't offer to help. It's because you refused his help. I encourage you to be involved in such a partnership. And I encourage you to see Brother Ed Martin, who's the head of that for us. If you don't know who Ed is, he's right up here. And if you can't see up here, then go to the resource table during Cafe Community and they'll point him out to you, okay? And they'll give you some of the material. Just a few other suggestions. Take the time to read some books that will help you with that. I recommend a few. There's a book called Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. Disciplines for the Christian Life. It is about these very kinds of things, availing yourself of the help that Jesus provides through these disciplines. Disciplines for the Christian Life by Whitney. Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes. And Disciplines of a Godly Woman by his wife, Barbara Hughes. I'll send you an email with those titles in case you didn't get those. But the important thing right now is, friends, every one of us commits ourselves to saying, Jesus, you're my help. And I will avail myself of the help that you provide. We mentioned what Jesus has done to come to save people from their sins. And before we conclude in prayer, I want to offer opportunity for anyone who has come here who came not having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ to offer you opportunity to come to him. How do I do that? Admit that you're a sinner. Recognize what it is that Jesus did on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sin, to absorb the wrath of a righteous God because of our sin. Repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you and no longer go my own route. And you receive Jesus into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And you pray from your heart to God in your own words, no magic formula. And you tell him you're a sinner. And you tell him you believe that he's the only Savior. And you tell him that you want to follow him and no longer go your own way. And you ask him to save you. He promises to do that. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you that we are able to have this time in freedom, in safety. That we've had the health to be here as your people, to to praise you in song, to give back to you, to fellowship with each other. But Lord, most of all, we thank you that we're able to look into the pages of your word and see your very 
sure and precious promises there. Thank you for the promises that we have. Sure promises, guarantees because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what he has done in the past and for what he is doing in the, fu- in the present, interceding for us. And what he's going to do in the future as he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords to establish his kingdom of which we will be a part and for which our, our hearts long. Lord, we thank you that you are still saving men and women. Every day you are calling men and women out of the world and to yourself and your Holy Spirit is moving on hearts so that the Word of God resonates with them and they say, yes, that's what I need. That's who I need. I pray that right now you're saving some in this room, drawing them to yourself, making them anew from the inside out, giving them new desires to follow and to please you, to your glory. We pray and we do all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.